Hello, everyone, and welcome to another week of Mastering Dungeons. I am Sean Merwin here with my close friend and compatriot, Teos Abadia. Hey, Teos. Hello, Sean. How are you? Hello, listeners. I hope everybody is doing really well. I hope everyone's doing really well, too. Should I say more? <laughs> no, no, that's it. We're done. Thank you for listening. Uh, we're out. Uh, no. <laughs> good to, to, good today night. Is, drive safely. Yeah, today is going to be the episode of Teos Explains Things to Sean, because Sean's a little slow today. <laughs> so, uh, that, not that that's different than many of the other days, but uh, it's going to be extra special today. I am not but, worried. Yeah, you slow is like other people on speed, so we're good. We'll, we'll see about that uh, because in, mm-hmm. we'll, we'll cover a lot of news again today, and then we'll cover the wizard class from Tasha's Cauldron of Everything and all the special goodies that were in there for the wizard, which is why uh, I'm partially why I know I'm going to be slow. Uh, reading through that, I, I was. Mean, you are the mad wizard, though. Oh, well, I, I am more the mad. Uh, first level uh apprentice who can only cast mending and and usually gets that wrong so i mean good spell though it is a good spell now, how you can use it that's a whole other story but anyway uh so let's get on with the news see our first bit of news already has a percentage uh in it mm-hmm. so we know there's going to be math involved so my brain is just melted right now <laughs> but we learned that wizards of the coast accounted for 75% of the quarter one profits for Hasbro. So this is quarter one profits, not quarter one revenue, right? Quarter one profits. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's an important distinction, but 75% of Hasbro's profits for quarter one coming from Wizards of the Coast. Unbelievable. It's incredible. And even though we know that Magic the Gathering is like printing money, Mm-hmm. It's still incredible, and the fact that the story is not, de- or, or Magic: The Gathering is all the profit, but that it is also D and D, and the D and D is a strong part of that. It is just yeah. unbelievable. Yeah, and I I think you know part of the part of the wow factor of that is that D and D was never ever mentioned as part of Hasbro's overall uh, you know portfolio ever. And I think now the rest of the business has sort of dropped back because of the pandemic and because of changing, you know, trends in, in entertainment and so on. But that Wizards is also going up while the rest of Hasbro is coming back to get to this point that I never could have foreseen. Yeah. And even when you account for the pandemic-based economy and all those things, because the toy segment has had trouble, it's also about the nature of the business in that mm-hmm. making a toy, you can only charge so much for it because of the competition and all of that. So your your profit is lower because there's all these material costs and shipping costs and returns and all these things. And somehow, you know, on the D&D side, that is not the case, right? This is this is a lean enough operation in terms of its costs that it's high profit. And, and we saw some of that before. And, and even before, Wizards was 72%, but now it's 75% of the profits. So it's it's getting better, which is just... Uh, and, and, and this is on the heels of just, you know, year after year where we're reporting, ooh, revenue growth. That's pretty impressive. And it just keeps going. And so... Yeah. yeah, sales for the segment were up 15% in quarter one 
from 210 million in 2020 to 242 million this year. Right. And um, they did say that that the, the profits, while it is you know 75 percent of the profits, the segment is only 22 percent of the 1.1 billion in sales. Right. And that's that whole profit versus uh, you know how lean can you be? Right. If I sell you a T-shirt for you know a thousand dollars, but it costs me a dollar to make, well that's great. I, I made a ton of money. But if I only sell one T-shirt because you were the only person crazy enough to buy a thousand dollar T-shirt, thanks right. Sean. Yeah, um, exactly. you know, then I'm not in, I mean, it's not bad, but that doesn't feed anybody. But if I can sell a billion things and only make it, you know, a penny each time, that's still a lot of money. So, right. Yeah. yeah. So all, so it, all of that it is interesting that that profit is lean. Yep. And of course, has Hasbro attributed that growth to Wizards of the Coast and digital gaming segments, both in Magic the Gathering and in Dungeons and Dragons. And uh, one of the quotes from the Analyst ICV2 said, the craziest number is that the operating profit for the WOTC and digital gaming segment was $420.4 million, uh, representing a 46% operating profit margin. So uh, that, that goes back to the point we just made where the rest of Hasbro is, their sales are huge. Their sales are like $3.5 billion, but it costs that that segment you know more than 75 percent of that to produce what they're selling so that's uh you know that's yeah. an important thing to keep in mind and the thing to watch is that companies and i'm not saying that, that any of this will apply to hasbro or wizards or DD, but companies in general when they see this sort of thing they go cool how can i get that one unit to either do more Mm -hmm. Right. Because if you're so profitable, if I can double the amount you do, well, and I'm, this is wonderful, but maybe the secret sauce is that you're not doubling what you do. Right. And I've worked right. at such companies where they try to just squeeze more out and that can be catastrophic right. to the organization. Right. Or they might say, why don't you make the toys work that way? Well, it's a different business. And so it yeah. can be hard, but there are always those forces, shareholders for one, Mm -hmm. that lead to a company sort of being blinded when these kinds of things right. happen. So we'll see how that goes. <laughs> and, and as Teos and I have both seen in, in the business world, sometimes your success is accidental. Mm -hmm. And in the act of trying to reproduce that success, you end up sabotaging your own success. Whether it yeah, be, exactly. as Teos said, trying to get more out of Dungeons & Dragons when they're at the perfect medium of balance of sales and and expense so you know doubling the size of the company hoping to double the size of the profits when yeah. that's not going to happen charging more for certain products when it's at the perfect price point to get every uh potential buyer out there you know all of those things come into play so it will be interesting to keep an eye on this number as things uh progress and we we haven't even brought into this conversation potential profits to be made from TV shows and right. and movies right. and other sorts of licensing uh, that, because you know, licensing doesn't cost you a heck of a lot depending on the deals you work out. Uh, right. It's just pure profit. You're not paying anyone to work on it. So uh, we'll see if licensing can grow and uh, add to that profit without adding to expenses. 
Yeah, and along the lines of kind of crazy ideas, the other thing that was sort of towards the end of this news story was that Hasbro is actively developing products using non-fungible tokens or NFTs. And that's the way that you create these like digital collectibles. Um, it's, it's kind of a lot like a Magic the Gathering pack, or it can be, but only digital and you don't actually own it. You own a certificate that says you own it. Uh, and anyone else can actually have the thing. So there can be some really weird variations, but mentioned in this story was that Transformers, Magic the Gathering, Dungeons and Dragons, and G.I. Joe are all seen as potential properties to do this kind of thing and that they're you know, making strong headway on it. And it all, to me, is a nightmare because it's an enormous source of energy consumption and it just seems like such a horrible idea. But yeah, I mean, this is this is one of those Teos explains to Sean what's going on, uh, because you know I, <laughs> I I understood what NFT stood for, but I, you know, I, I'm old, you know, these crazy kids with their NFTs, uh, and I'm not a collector either of anything, whether it be real or digital. So I you know I understand that it's a thing. And, you know, it's just hard for me to wrap my limited mind around. Yeah, I mean, an easy way would be, you know, when you buy a pack of Magic the Gathering cards, you know what that looks like. And imagine that it's, you know, Bruiner Battle Hammer and it's Drizzt Warden and it's Caddy except they're all now digital. Mm -hmm. But it's not a game. You don't necessarily play with them. They're just they're digital and maybe they come in different rarities. And if I get the ultra foil digital... But I'm not the only owner of, I mean, well, it, it's, it can be out there publicly, but I, it just says that I own it. And, and right. what, I'm, what I'm buying is, is that, that certificate that says that I own it, but you can look at it just like I can. Right. It's sort of the concept. Yeah. But, but it's this, it's sort of, it's really a trap, right? It takes, I mean, at least with magic cards, we can play them. And even if when it's digital, we're playing a game, but it, it's like baseball cards to a really bizarre degree that there's almost no point of it except you're salivating over being the one who owns it. Right. And that's what's what, what it's all about. And it, it's a strange leverage of the human brain is the way it feels yeah. to extract profit, right? It's just like yeah. let's let's just let's let's push some D and D fan out there yeah. would pay a thousand dollars for the gold foiled Drizdorden. So let's make it. Right. Right? Yeah, I, yeah. That's sort okay. of the idea. And right. even though everybody could look at the picture and it's just I don't and I oh, just yeah, it's don't it's make a, bad things. Yeah. yeah, it's it's consumer psychology, <laughs> but, and if you and if you in capitalism, mm -hmm. if you can make something, uh, that if there's a demand for it, even if you're creating that demand, uh, yeah. then you can make money by supplying it. So it's uh, well, yeah. yeah. If I if I Good had luck. to guess, they've got their Hasbro Pulse platform that they can use to sell things online, and they've been selling things like collectibles, right, like Drizzt statuettes and stuff like that. My guess is they'll they'll try something there with yeah. one of their brands, and depending yeah. on that how it goes, it goes you know that'll yeah they'll push it one way or the other and into more brands, and I hope it all just fades away, <laughs> fades <laughs> away quietly. Not fading away is the news about the D and D movie, which is has now started filming. I saw the tweet that had the Woo. had the little what are the, when you click them together, you know, scene one. Take one. Yeah, uh, the storyboard, right? Yeah, they. Uh, or no, they, no, no. What is it called? It's the. Um, I, I think I even put it in some, a slate board. Slate board. There yeah. you go. Okay. Yes, slate the board. Slate board. You, you, you cut. Yep. 
that has been clicked and it, it, filming has begun. Uh, the stars are beginning to arrive in Belfast, Ireland, where principal uh, photography is going to take place. Although the scenes that have been uh, shot so far are all taking place in Iceland. And it mm-hmm. says uh, the scenes shot in Iceland were the first to be shot for the film, which will almost exclusively be filmed at Titanic Studios in Belfast, Northern Ireland, home of Titanic Studios, which we know through Game of Thrones. Yeah, all eight seasons were filmed there as the base of filming. Yep. Um, so, yeah, there's these two things. Ice, Iceland being used for scenic shots. Gee, what does that make us think of? Right. And then Ireland is, as the location to, I guess, sort of be able to do sort of cool medieval scenes the way yeah. they did in Game of Thrones. Um And they say this quote, in part of the film, Icelandic landscape will play an important role. Yep. And uh, so, and it said that none of the principal actors will be, you know, at, in Iceland filming, they will be stand-ins used for them, which makes me think like large battle scene or a travel scene that uses more of the landscape. You don't get any close-ups. Uh, of of any mm-hmm. of the action, so and you know Iceland is such a strange environment because when you think of Iceland, the, your first thought might be snow, ice, glaciers, that sort of thing. But it's so varied in its in its landscape and its e- ecosystems that you could practically film anything there. There's you know large swaths of of these hot pools and and greenery and and so it's uh, it. It'll be interesting to see what what they're going for in these scenes once once the movie comes out. I've never analyzed a movie like this. That shows you how excited I am. <laughs> Usually I'm like, I don't I know, care. Right? Just show me the movie when it comes out, and I'll be happy. Well, yeah. Yeah. And usually we see the trailer, right? That's the first thing that you really see for most movies. Unless you're a super hardcore fan, maybe you'd yeah. pick up a couple of details. But it's yeah. so strange to have we've, – we've been talking about this movie – Gosh, for for years, years and years. Wow. Yep. So it is underway. Uh, So an even another milestone in the uh, creation of this film that we're waiting for. So next up, the Draconic Option Survey that we talked about through Unearthed Arcana. Uh, That survey is now up, so you can go to the Wizards. Uh, .com website and give them your feedback on those expanded Dragonborn, Kobolds, and Draconic feats and spells. News about Jeff Goldblum. I asked yeah. a few people on Twitter. Oh. Well, just I was going to say, I asked a few people on Twitter sort of how they felt about it. And it was interesting. It was, it was kind of all over the map on what people liked and didn't like about it. So yeah. I'm, I'm interested to see what we'll see in the future with, with that one. Yeah, well, it, the game is called Dungeons and Dragons, so... Seeing seeing dragony things doesn't surprise me in any way, shape, or form. Uh, so you're saying this suggests we're about to get dungeon options where we get to play various types of dungeons. Yes, uh, I'm probably going to play a keep. Uh-huh. You know, it yeah. grows up to yeah. be a really large tower. Keep. I don't know. I, I don't even. Uh, I, I was going to play in. Progress. Was, is it an abattoir? Is that what it's called? Uh, that sort of hole in the. Yeah. I'm gonna play play that. Yeah, uh, hold fast. Yeah, yeah. There's so many options. Yeah, I'm gonna multi-class hold fast in <laughs> Moathouse. No. Well, that's broken. <laughs> it's already broken. I can tell. Someone who will it's not be playing. Option. Yeah, exactly. Someone who will not be playing 
uh, any of those things is Jeff Goldblum, although he will <laughs> be playing D&D. Uh, you want to talk about this? I mean, this is the craziest thing. So all right, Jeff Goldblum from Jurassic Park and The Fly and jeopardy jokes and and the world according to jeff goldblum which if you haven't watched an episode of that treat yourself to one and then just you'll scratch your head for hours uh he is going to be playing on the upcoming season of the DD podcast called dark dice he's playing an elven sorcerer named balmore who is searching for his daughter's missing locket it doesn't sound like jeff goldblum has played DD before uh though he did have an episode of his disney plus show world according to jeff goldblum where he did uh, all about LARPing. I haven't seen it, but apparently it does a good job LARPing. I mean, he's an actor. Um, and I love this interview with the host of the podcast where he was asked how it happened. And he says, quote, if I'm being completely honest, I'm not entirely sure. We were just looking for a fifth player for our game. We're not well connected. We're not related to someone. We don't have corporate sponsors and we're not with a wet network. I'm literally recording episodes from my mother-in-law's sewing closet. <laughs> <laughs> and then suddenly you have world-renowned actor Jeff Goldblum on your show. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, follow your dreams, kids, because yeah. Jeff Goldblum could join your podcast. It's just, it's that simple. Uh, season begins May 12th. This is the second season. And you try to figure out what this podcast is, and it's fascinating. They have two different parties who are exploring, and they eventually are going to face each other. And there's some sort of thing where, where they, 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 this is a model I've started hearing about more about, but they will, they will play D&D. Then they take what happened, and they create a, 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 like almost an audio drama out of what happened. So what you're getting is voice acting, original music, sound effects, like this really cool produced audio drama show uh, based on what happened in the game. Mm -hmm. And apparently there are things like when you die, you go to the other party or the other team. There, there, there are some really wild, interesting ideas. So you, you can check it out to see kind of what it's all about. But it's really high production values. Um, yeah, it's not your typical like okay, you know, Sue, roll the D20, I got a 15. It's, it's, it's more like, you know, as the high elf sweeps in through the corridor. It's, it's very <laughs> fascinating, and I could see how Jeff Goldblum might buy into this kind of thing. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, hey, it's, the more people that play D&D, the better. Bring in, bring in famous people to play D&D. Hey, great. Make the game fun. Uh, show everybody what a great D&D game can be. And we're all yeah. better people for it. Yeah, and this, you know, this was on Dateline and various other news pieces carrying this. So it's just more of that, you know, D and D in the world. We're at the Jeff Goldblum in a podcast stage of D and D. <laughs> um, and along similar lines, uh, Peter Adkison, the, the who used to be the CEO of Wizards of the Coast and is the CEO of Gen Con, he has a live live play called Actoroki. That is a similar type of thing. They create a live stream for an RPG session, which you can watch as they play in, in Peter's world of Chaldea. And, and they go back and they create a script performing and perform it live, filmed by a cast of actors, so different people, based on that. So you can see both pieces. And, and there's even sort of a third element to it. It's, it's, it's really fascinating, this idea of sort of like, see how it gets played, see how it gets created, and then the acting out piece. 
Um, so that's out there. If you're interested, you can search for Actoroki. Yeah. And it's, although this isn't in our notes, uh, who, Bill Maher, uh, got a boatload of well-deserved criticism for, you know, going on his show and spouting off as he does because controversy is what he sells. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he said Mm -hmm. basically watching people playing D and D is a waste of time. Uh, you know, stir up controversy (laughs) and, and well, yes, uh, pretty much everything is a waste of time. So, you know, sitting and watching people play golf on television is a waste of time. Uh, but you know, this, these sorts of things that we're seeing happening with the game being, uh, displayed in through various media, the same live stream being turned into a, a, you know, a, a voice play is just two ways in which the game can attract fans and players and an audience. And maybe those, maybe there's more, uh, maybe, yeah. yeah. I, I don't want to say like maybe novels are coming back because I don't think novels are coming back anytime soon, <laughs> but you know, they're comic books who, you know, there, there are a ton of different ways that, people can be entertained and role playing can be the anchor for a bunch of them. Yeah. I mean, it's funny how you hear so many people say, yeah, I don't get why people enjoy watching people play D and D and yet more and more people are watching people play D and D. And so it's clear that it's an entertainment medium that's not for everybody. Whereas you, it's hard to find a person who says, I don't like a movie. Right. Mm-hmm. But um, I'm sure there are. Oh, but, there but are. It's, it's, it's hard to find, right? Yeah. But but uh, but that just tells you that it's big enough. There isn't that that breadth works, right? Having all those different types of live streams and live podcasts and everything work. And, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And it it's just it's encouraging for people that want to get into that to to try it uh, because they're they're the the market is not saturated yet. There are a ton of them, but there are also a ton of things that people still want and and don't have, uh, hasn't fulfilled that need yet. So, you know, if you're out there going, oh, I'm not going to stream my stuff because everyone's doing it, keep doing it. You'll you'll find an audience, even if it starts with, you know, three people watching. Those three people, if they're entertained, uh, you're doing more than a lot of people uh, in terms of creativity. So go for it. Yes. And I think as long as it's healthy for you to create the thing mm-hmm. and you're enjoying it, right? What's what's difficult, and I think you see this a lot with streaming, is where people want to attain what others have. And that is right. a, a, a usually a bad game to play, right? To mm-hmm. try to be the most successful podcast or whatever. Like I was listening to Tim Harford's podcast, you know, which he was a guest on our show recently. And it's so cool because it has these professional actors doing pieces of the story mm-hmm. and sound effects and, and, and all this, and he has commercials and I'm like, wow, yeah, that's, that's really cool. But the level of work that it would take to do that for me mm-hmm. would probably not be a lot of fun, right? right. Like, like right. I wouldn't want to put that much into it. Although I guess he has a producer, so that's not bad. So if you'd like to produce our show, let us know. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But you know, it, it, but that's the thing is like, you want to enjoy what you're doing and, and, and I think people sometimes disconnect that reality between what it takes to be 
critical role <laughs> and where you are, right? And so enjoy yeah. what you do always, not because it might someday become a thing you enjoy. Exactly. And it's the same for creating D&D content, not just streams, but putting up your subclasses yeah. on the DM skill, right? It, it may not be a platinum bestseller in, in a week, but it's out there. People are looking at it, even if it's just a few people. And as long as, as Taylor said, as long as you enjoy what you're doing, continue to do it, you know, continue to evolve yeah. in your, your art uh, and, 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 the, and learn. The act of creating, the act of creating forces you to hone your skills, right? That's mm -hmm. that necessity. There's such a difference between thinking about the subclass you would create and having to push publish at the end of the day, like because right. you had to hit, you know, publish, mm -hmm. send, whatever, that forces you to make it better and to, to pick up skills and do better and better. So. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Cool. And speaking of better and better, we have an article from Sly Flourish on the dials of monster difficulty. Never heard of him. Never heard of him. But we'll call him Mike Shea. Uh, he, his blog oh, post discusses yeah. the dials of D, uh, DMs can adjust before or during the game to set the challenge level that will be most fun. Yeah, this up-and-coming blogger uh, <laughs> talked about various things you can control. <laughs> I tried to say that with a straight face. Yeah. Uh, so number of things that you can change, right? These, he identifies these dials. Number of monsters, monster hit points, monsters number of attacks, monster damage, which is my favorite. Um, and he, for each of those, gives some really good recommendation of, of how you can alter them either before or during play to make it feel sort of seamless and, and reach that right level of challenge. It's, it's a really nice blog post. Yep. And you know, it, what do you it, like changing? Uh, I, I like changing all of the styles of these. Yeah. I generally, yeah. uh, monster hit points are what I adjust and it's usually on the fly because there's generally a perfect time for a monster to fall. Uh, there's yeah. generally a perfect time for a character to fall. And so I, I don't just adjust in one direction, right? There's a monster that's got this really cool attack, but he's got a low number of hit points. And the first three characters that go all hit him and damage him. And so I can't use, you know, this master wizard's big spell. So I'm like, oh, he's still up. And, <laughs> you know, boom, his attack goes off. And then the next person that hits him, they're done. Dead. Same thing yeah. the other way. You know, if, if there's if there's a monster with a lot of hit points and he's and this monster's not doing much damage or doesn't have a great chance to hit because of the situation, I'll have those those monsters hit points to get that fight over with quicker. Yeah. And and get to the thing that's important. Because the it's part of the story. It's not just a combat, it's not just this tactical exercise. There's a flow to stories, and you want to capture that flow the best you can. So doing all of these things that, that Mike talks about, that Sly Flourish talks about, you know, adjusting the monsters, the number of monsters, number of hit points, all of that helps with the story more than anything. Yeah. And I think that's something that some DMs are just very good at recognizing, right? Like they're running a monster, and there's this cool thing the monster does, and they realize, hey – that doesn't have to just happen right now. It can happen whenever we need it to happen, right? This monster has a special thing where it suddenly attacks everybody within five feet. 
you know, I can have monsters do that. Mm -hmm. Like you can break the rules in these ways because it's for the players and for you too, but it's for the players. So it's, so it's fun and awesome and invigorating, right? There should be no lame combat, right? Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And as long as you keep in mind that it's for everyone, not just for you, not just for one player, but for everyone to get the most enjoyment out of this, this hobby, this story, this tactical game, whatever you want to, however you play it. If you're changing it for those reasons, there's no bad way to change it. And as you get more experience running games, you get to, you get a better feel for that. When you first start, you may accidentally, Oh, I did this because I thought it was going to be cool and everything went sideways then you learn to fix it on the fly. You learn to adjust. You learn to do all of those things. So, And if you're doing it right uh, and the players are not overly analytical, then no one knows. No one's none the wiser uh, at the end of it. I did that once where I went to a gaming store in Houston, Texas. And the previous week there had been a DM. And so I was ready to play. And they're like, oh, the DM showed up. Didn't show up. Do you want to run? And I'm like, Okay, sure. And it was part of um, uh, Horde of Tiamat and uh, Horde of the Dragon Queen. Yeah. And I and I just grabbed the thing and I'm like, oh, okay, whatever, you know, sure, I'll just throw in some bandits, whatever. And I'm just making up stats on the fly. And and it was all going really well till every character started dropping. And they're like, wow, these, these monsters are tough. And I was just making up stuff. Like I, right. I was basically not even looking at a page. Yeah. And and I'm like, oh, uh-oh. <laughs> and boy, did those monsters turn out to be all on their last hit point, one yeah. after the other. <laughs> that party bounced back because I was like, oh. Because that's the thing with characters is they go from being invulnerable to being yeah. gone. <laughs> it, it doesn't take long, yeah, especially at lower levels. Yeah. No. You turn that corner and things go really rough. So, so you, you can check that uh, blog article out at slyflourish.com. On Twitter. Lisa Penrose of the DMs Guild posted the table of contents for the Ravenloft book. Lots of goodies in there. Uh, Chapter one, character creation. A lot of those uh, lineages that we've talked about in the past that they put up on in Unearthed Arcana. Uh, The the dark gifts that were uh, provided Mm -hmm. in in, uh, the... Cast, not Castle Ravenloft. What was it called? Curse, Curse of Strahd. Thank you. Uh, Curse of Strahd, yeah. Yep. Subclass Six options. pages of them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, subclass options of College of Spirits Bard and the Undead Warlock. Some new backgrounds. Uh, then Chapter 2 is Creating the Domains of Dread. So it tells you how to create them, different kinds of horror, uh, creating the Dark Lord that that the domain is centered around. Then it gives chapter three is all these domains of Ravenloft. Just so many. Uh, and th- th- they give like larger descriptions of ones like Barovia, uh, a Borka, Blutspur, uh, the Carnival. There's, there's a ton of them. And then they give shorter versions of other domains of dread. And the first one is Seer 1313. The morning rail. So, uh, Eberron. Yeah. So, Eberron. Uh, it's funny because I was always wondering if they would do that, have that crossover, because it makes perfect sense, right? Seer is, is surrounded by fog. It w- will it be a domain of dread? And now it's only 
a very short blurb, obviously. It's only, there's like three domains on that one page. So they, they only give like a small capsule for it. But there it is. Did any yeah. stand out to you? Well, I'm not seeing Kalidne, which is the one that uh, I'm most curious about because that's the, the sort of strange one that like got a sorcerer queen from Dark Sun. Right. But then sort of, no, she's not there or maybe she is. Or there was some confusion as to what exactly was supposed to be going on with that domain and why it ended up being in a book. Um, yeah. but, so I don't see that there. And that was the first thing I was looking at. Right. And um, I didn't, I didn't step back and like go through all my old, no. you know, all my old domains of dread to see what has carried over and what hasn't. Uh, but well, there's so many here. Uh, that... There's a lot. And, and what I would recommend to folks who are curious about this design, especially if you find yourself, if you're an older fan and you find yourself wanting to say, but wait a minute, this isn't what it was or uh, you know, or why isn't my favorite one here? Go back and, and listen to the Dragon Talk podcast episodes. The, the, they're the recent ones that have been um, sort of like the last five or six of them. Uh, Wes Schneider has been on with Greg Tito as a regular segment where they cover one domain. Mm-hmm. Um, this is also a neat way to get some sort of you know, how it was designed background and to understand the domain better. But it, they've been going through select domains one by one. And one of the common elements is that they, when they would look at the old material, they would say it might be a mishmash of inspirations. Mm-hmm. Um, so it sort of had a story, but it wasn't like a theme. And so they decided to pare these down so that each domain could focus on a type of story you might want to tell. Mm-hmm. Because there's so many domains, you know, let's have one that's more conducive to... Uh, mummies and one that's more conducive to vampire stories, right? Which is Barovia. Mm-hmm. Let's have one that's more were creatures. One that is um, mind games, right? Mental horror, uh, body horror, things like that. And so, so they they retooled the domains to create that. And sometimes they made more out of what had been in the old material. Sometimes less. Uh, but they shaped each of them to create a better experience. And that necessarily is going to mean that if you're a huge fan of a particular domain from second edition, it may not be what you remembered, but mm-hmm. there's a reason for it. Right. And, and right. I've already seen some folks out on the interwebs getting mad and <laughs> feathers have been ruffled. Oh boy. Uh, but, but I think, I think the, the mentality of why makes sense. And I, and I think in the end, the, this product is better for that approach. Mm-hmm. I mean, I say that not having seen it, but I'm going to guess so. Right. And we are also in living in a different world than 1980, whatever, 1990, early 90s. Um, So a lot of the things that were perfectly reasonable back then uh, have been proven to not be totally reasonable in 2020. Uh, Chapter four, we get even the two. Go ahead. So I was going to say they they mentioned that sometimes two domains were created by different people sort of simultaneously, mm-hmm. and are too similar. So mash yeah. them together or change the one to be slightly different, right? So you get more out of it this way. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, this was the domains were one of my favorite things of second edition. Uh, I loved playing around with these with these I, this idea of sort of a distilled fulcrum of evil of a certain kind. Uh, bringing about a land mm-hmm. and it looks like you know, without having seen the details of each 
this is going to to be wonderful. Uh, chapter four she talks about running and preparing horror adventures. And then chapter five gives you new monsters set in Ravenloft. And then there's an appendix, the spirit board, which I assume is going to be like a Ouija board kind of thing. Yeah. And so uh, there are other snippets of content that Lisa uh, Penrose put up. So if you don't follow her on Twitter, it's Lisa L Y S A Penrose. And you should follow her and see what uh, some of the things she shared are. Yeah, the monsters look pretty neat and, and disgusting. So, uh, mm-hmm. so I'm looking forward to playing around with those. Yep. yep. And with those disgusting remarks lingering in the air, let's talk about wizards. <laughs> <laughs> let's see how Tasha's Cauldron of Everything uh, presents new options and new subclasses for the wizard. So starting with additional uh, optional features, additional wizard spells, we get those spells that were from the Sword Coast Adventurers Guide, like Booming Blade and Green Flame Blade. We also get new spells uh, that were in Tasha's, and then older spells that uh, have been brought over from other classes to become wizard spells, like Augury Divination and Speak with Dead. I mean, I think it makes sense given that we have a diviner. Yeah. You know, uh, subclass, but I always hate to bring over too many things because yeah. I, I mean, like I have a cleric that the whole shtick is sort of this sort of like foretelling type thing. Right. Yeah, you can have the wizard doing it too. So there's always that little bit of, but it's fine. It's fine. Yeah. I've got no yeah. real issues with it. Yeah. Um, and a lot of it was just bringing the idea of bringing in Sword Coast Adventures Guide over. So it's fine. Yeah. A lot of people were waiting wanting to run those classes that are a wizard that has access to those melee type spells. So there you go. Now yeah. you can do that. Uh, the other optional wizard feature is at third level, you get cantrip formulas. Whenever you finish a long rest and consult those formulas in your spell book, you can replace one wizard cantrip, you know, with another cantrip from the wizard spell list. And I think Teos and I agree here. This is a bit of a head scratcher. Yeah, I think it's just the 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 lore. Like I always thought, the whole idea of a cantrip is that I just know this. You know, like this is a thing I can do. And so the idea that I can r- somehow look at a written thing and swap which cantrip I know just seems really weird. Yeah. I mean, I get the flexibility point of it, but. Uh, it just seems strange, like a lore twist that doesn't fit, but right. okay. This, this goes back to the problem that I've had with like wizards and sorcerers since first edition and third edition is the wizard is different from the other arcane casters in that, that they have flexibility. They have a ton of spells that they can choose from. <laughs> and with time, they can always have the right tool for the job in terms of spells, whereas sorcerers have less flexibility. So giving the sorcerer more flexibility makes them more wizard-like. So then you have to give more flexibility to the wizards to make them even more wizard-like. <laughs> Wizard-likerer than the sorcerer. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, it's 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 a it's a it's a whole thing, and it. Obviously, yeah. if you're making it more flexible for everyone, you need to give more flexibility here. But you're absolutely right. Specifically in the in the player's handbook, 
And in the basic rules, it says, you know, for the wizard and the cantrips, you know, it's it's in your brain. It, there is no mention of a cantrip needing to be in your spell book or having anything to do with your spell book. So to now yeah. have have this thing in your spell book, it's like, okay, I get it, but really, did we have to? I could always cast mending, but not today. Yeah. Yep. <sighs> but I so, don't memorize it normally. I don't need to rest to get it back. But it's, ah, okay, you know. Yeah. So it, it's fine. I, you know, it's one of those things that's more mechanical. But I just, I, I like my lore to sort of, my, my, I don't know, things right. to make sense, and this, this breaks right. it for me. Right. And and I, as you said, I don't know that we needed this. I think it feels like they were just trying to add a feature that wasn't new spells. Mm -hmm. Um. But the wizard's generally fine, so we we really didn't need it. But yeah. okay. All right. So now let's talk about the two subclasses. Uh, the first one is blade singing, blade singer. Uh, and I will I will be straight up here as I go through this. Wizard is my least favorite class. Um, I I am is not it? a yeah. Why is I'm that? Not a, I'll go through it as as we talk. <laughs> okay. Uh, yep. But just do, do you mean as a topic or like the five E construct of it, the way the class is? Just just the the yes. class itself overall since first edition. Uh, I rarely, oh, wow. okay. rarely, mm -hmm. rarely play a wizard, and I've played a lot. I, I I have played wizards because I play so many characters over the editions, uh, but it's the one I would play the least. Um, the first okay, though cool. is is Blade Singer, which. Uh, the concept is this sort of wizard tradition that started with the elves, where they would incorporate arc the arcane arts into their sword play. So it becomes sort of a song and dance routine with a sword and arcane magic. Dinner and a show. Yeah. Dinner and a show. Yeah, and we saw this in Sword Coast Adventurer's Guide. Uh, it was one of those sort of uh, attempts. And, and one of the things that's interesting is back then, this was an elf only, elves and half elves only restriction. Though it did say DMs could change that. And now that restriction's gone, and here it is for everybody to use. So it's another Sword Coast Adventures Guide port. So I think you now have to go to the Sword Coast Adventures Guide if you want to play the like dwarf with spikes. That's about it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, right. Everything else. What do they has, call those? <laughs> yeah, I'm like, it's not Battle Rager, yeah. is it? Uh, I, I don't remember. Yeah, actually, I think it is. Is it? Is it Battle Rager? I think Rager? you're right. Okay. I think it is Battle Rager. Yeah. I want to hug Maybe. you with my spiked armor. Yes, that, 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 <laughs> that subclass. I, mean, I just know it from the novels, the, the kind of Chris Dorden type novels, but yeah. Yeah. So uh, for the subclass itself, at second level, you get uh, training in war and song. You gain proficiency with light armor, which you will need if you're going to be up there fighting face-to-face uh, -face with your enemies. And you get one type of one-handed melee weapon of your choice. Technically, does not have to be a sword uh, or a blade. So you know, if you want to be yeah, the... Be an axe or something else. Right. If you want to be the club singer, <laughs> apparently you can. Yeah, and... It doesn't. It doesn't appear in this book, but in the Sword Coast Adventures Guide, there's a long sidebar that talks about the different styles, all of which comes from the old Two E book. Um, it's a, you know one of the, the complete book of elves. Right. It's an infamous book. Oh yeah. It was very broken. 
Um, but there, there are these various styles that are in the sidebar in Sword Coast Adventures Guide of, of, you know, you call yourself out under the style of the cat or of this, that, or the other yeah. based on which weapons you wield. And, mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so you get those proficiencies, and you also gain proficiency in the performance skill if you don't already have it. Also at second level, you get your major ability, which is Blade Song. Um, you can invoke an elven magic called the Blade Song, provided you aren't wearing medium armor or heavy armor or using a shield. Uh, this graces you with supernatural speed, agility, and focus. So you need to use a bonus action to start the Blade Song, which lasts for one minute. So think of Rage but much uh, much sprightlier. Uh, it ends if you are incapacitated, if you don medium or heavy armor or shield within that minute, um, or if you use two <laughs> hands to make an a- attack with your weapon. So you have to have, you don't have to have a free hand, but you can't use the weapon in two hands. And you can also dismiss the blade song at any time with no action required. So what do you get for your blade song? While uh, you are blade singing, you gain a bonus to your armor class equal to your intelligence modifier. So that's, uh, if you're a wizard, you're probably looking at plus three to start with at least, and and then up as you go. Did you want to comment on that? Yeah, it's pretty sweet. I mean, on top of mage armor or studded leather, uh, and then you've got shield probably because you're up there mailing, you can be quite tanky. Uh, if, especially if you choose to give yourself a decent dex, right? You you go dex and int, and, and yeah, it's pretty strong. Yep. Uh, you also get your walking speed increase by 10 feet, so you're much more agile and ab- uh, able to move further. You have advantage on acrobatics checks, and you gain a bonus to your constitution saving throw to maintain maintain concentration on a spell equal to your intelligence modifier. Uh, so there you go. You are up in battle, probably. One thing that doesn't change is your hit die. You are still, uh, you know, still using that D6. So you're going to need that armor class up yeah. there and have those tricks uh, available to you because, uh, you know, at lower levels, you're going to be pretty squishy. Uh, yeah, anything? I mean, it's not a D4, thank goodness, but... Yeah, it's just your hit points. I mean, that is a thing. Uh, but but this is this does help. You're, even when you get hit, you might still maintain concentration on the spells that you have up, especially if they're defensive ones, or if you do you know things like armor of Agathis or stuff like that. Like that can all have a, a lot better chance of hanging on. Um, and you can throw a pretty high armor class up, so it's pretty strong. One thing that's interesting here is how they've changed the uh, number of times you can use it. It used to be just two, but could come back with a shorter long rest. And they've been getting rid of these short rest things design-wise. It's been a lot more about the adventuring day uh, because you can only take a long rest once per day. You can't take multiples. So it, it paces things out better, um, whereas you can take a lot of short rests. So they've changed it to now be number of times equal to your proficiency bonus and you regain all expended uses when you finish a long rest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's, interesting. It, it is interesting to see that change uh, because at first you, it doesn't seem like a huge change until you get up in levels and your proficiency bonus gets higher and higher. Um, and it does start to sort out that sort of tension between a short rest and a long rest and what an adventuring day should look like. 
it, yeah, it, it really still does. it still makes those things that that come back on a short rest stick out even more to me. Yep, it uh, does. You know, it's it's like the the monk and yeah, yeah the monk the warlock and, and yep, the warlock getting spell slots back, and so it's it's a uh, it's an interesting change to note that maybe they're moving in a certain direction, and I think it's a necessary direction to better delineate what adventure flow is supposed to be what what the rules are supposed to uh, model for that it is the biggest problem i have with it you know play testing for fifth edition during dnd next it was a lot shorter for a short rest for a very long time and at the very end came the sudden you know play test notes because there'd be these sort of updates and it was like Short rest is an hour. And everybody went, what? Because I think it was like 10 minutes or something. Yeah. And the hardest part is often you want a short rest to heal because you're hurt. Right. And you want to burn those hit dice. And if you're never short resting, you're sort of never doing that healing. Mm-hmm. Or you're, and, and it's because it's that hour. An hour is a long time in many situations if you're out in the wilderness fine but then you might just not even face another challenge that day so it sort of doesn't matter right but it's when you're in these tight situations where you'd like to get a quick break but you can't and the reason you can't is because mechanically there were too many features that you would get back all the time but now those features aren't quite there it's like oh can i can i go back to the 10 minute short rests you know like i kind of want that back yeah or Or 30 minutes yeah or have the, an ability to to get back hit points without taking the long rest instead of having to do both to get those resources that you need. Yeah. You know, it, and that's one of the reasons I really love fourth edition was they just called an encounter an encounter and you give yeah. powers that can just be used once per encounter. And that's, and various abilities and spells, powers, whatever allowed you to, burn your the equivalent of hit dice now right you could mm-hmm. you could you could just do that that was a thing a bard or a warlord could let you do right you know take a swing and get back one of your hit dice you know spend a hit die yeah. to, to heal and that was those healing surges as a concept which is sort of what hit dice represent but they don't function in the same way yeah yeah uh, <laughs> i have a number of thoughts the more and more i look at fifth edition the more i kind of go oh i could see how we can as, as great as 5e is as oh, fun yeah. as it is I really see how we could tweak the skeleton of it differently if we wanted to, to, to be yeah. better. Yeah. Yep. And with the, with the popularity of streaming as a way of delivering entertainment, make the game work better for that medium as well. Is Yeah. I mean, one example, like I look at this, uh, as you look at all these classes, right? I, th- I feel like each of these subclasses is struggling to tell a story within the framework of what the game gives you. Yep. You must establish at second level what it is to be a blade, blade singer. Mm-hmm. So whatever features you give out, they've got to really feel like a blade singer because it's not until sixth level you're going to get your next feature. Mm-hmm. And it may or may not be flavorful. And spoiler for blade singer, it's an extra attack. And we'll, we'll talk about it as a little extra thing. Right. But you know, it's not like there's that much. And then it's 10th level. I mean, I might not be playing anymore. So a lot of what makes me a wizard blade singer is just what I got at second level. One little snip thing is what makes me different than, you know, an evoker or whatever. Like, right. 
that is a big deal, right? It, it's, yeah. it's a it's a hard framework. And you think of something like Shadow of the Demon Lord, where you get little things every level. Mm -hmm. That's a lot easier to tell a story with, right? Yeah. Yep. If we were designing a blade singer where every level you got a little thing, you could really feel that blade singing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Each and every level, you'd get more yeah. and more blade singery, right. and we could tell that story more easily as a designer. And so it's it's a hard framework, really yeah. tough. It is, but, and then it, but if you do switch to that, then it becomes fighting the tendency to want to give too much at every level. Because mm -hmm. then it, you get way too much power uh, because you want to sure. give something cool at each level. So it, it is it is a hard balance. And luckily, they have a team of very mm -hmm. smart people at Wizards of the Coast who, who are hopefully working on, uh, on it. So as Tails mentioned, at 6th level, you get extra attack. You can attack twice instead of once whenever you take the attack action on your turn. Moreover, you can cast one of your cantrips in place of one of those attacks. So... Attack with your sword, then attack with a cantrip. Or attack with your sword twice if you want. Or club or whatever one-handed weapon you're choosing to use. Uh, so that last part is new, yes? The yeah, that's, that's new. Didn't exist in the original version. And that's awesome because now you can do green flame blade on that second attack or some other cantrip that you want to if you need to fight range because you killed your person, you know, your target. That's great. Very cool. Yep. At 10th level, you get Song of Defense. You can direct your magic to absorb damage while your blade song is active. When you take damage, you can use your reaction to expend one spell slot and reduce that damage to you by an amount equal to five times the spell slot's level. So cast a fifth level or use a fifth level spell slot, absorb 25 points of damage. That definitely... Yeah, uh, not bad. Yeah, it, it helps mm -hmm. you with that potentially low hit point uh, value and uh, helps you stay up longer. And I, I love using spell slots for other things as long as it's very mm -hmm. easy to, to figure. Uh, at 14th level, you get yeah, Song of Victory. Very thematic. Cool. Yeah, exactly. At 14th level, you get Song of Victory. You can add your Intelligence modifier to your damage that your melee weapon attacks do while your Blade Song is active. So adding Intelligence to whatever other... Uh, modifier that you're doing with your weapon uh, plus the, the roll of the die. Anything? Worth noting that this applies to Booming Blade and Green Flame Blade, but not to Lightning Lure or Sword Burst for those of you building that up. Right, because the latter two are not weapon attacks uh, when they do their damage. That's mm -hmm. correct. Yep. All right. Yep. So overall, that that's that's the that's the whole shooting match there. Uh, what do you think? Yep of the of the blade singer it's cool i i think it's it's a hard thing to design right i think every edition tries to give you some gish options where you're both spell and melee and i think this does a pretty good job uh, mm -hmm. it's it's competitive with other options and i've seen people play blade singers with the old version that were good and i think they're slightly stronger now so yeah. Yeah, it's cool the, the thing that people tend to forget when they're reviewing these wizards uh wizard subclasses is that you can still cast all the other spells that you always cast. <laughs> Nothing stopping you from doing that. Yes. So you can still stand back and fireball things to your heart's content. Uh, and so in that sense, at higher levels, you're going to be powerful no matter what subclass you have. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So next we Good have stuff. Order of Scribes is the second subclass. 
the concept being that you are dedicated to your books and scrolls and quill to the point where you can yeah. magically awaken those things, your book and your quill, and make scrolls quickly and turn your book into an basically a, a companion uh, slash familiar. Uh, so at Almost, second level, yes, everything but a stat block. <laughs> yeah, pretty. Yeah, that's that's it's very true. Uh, so at second level, you get wizardly quill as a bonus action. You can magically create a tiny quill in your free hand, and then the quill has a bunch of properties. Uh, you can write without ink. You you can uh, copy spells in in a less amount of time. Or you can erase things that you've written with the quill by waving the feather end over it. Okay, that yeah, was a that was sort of yeah, that was a lot of reading for me. For for I'm like okay, what I'm, I'm still trying to okay uh, oh okay, um, and the quill disappears if you die or if you create a, a different quill. Rock on! Mm-hmm. And second level, you also get awakened spellbook. Okay, this is the big one. I'm going to let you go through this because this this is the reason I dislike wizards. Wizards, uh, there's so much bookkeeping, pun intended. Yeah. Uh, you know how much money? How many how many pages can I fit? What can I put in? What can I do? Can yeah. I cast the spell off of it? All of that. And this all this does is play around with that idea of the spell book uh, to the point where I just want to close the book on it. This is why warlocks make fun of wizards. Exactly. <laughs> and sorcerers too, right? Nerds. All right, so the second level, Awakened Spellbook. You have, as a nerd, an awakened, awakened an arcane sentience within your spellbook. While you're holding the book, you get the following. You can use the book as a spellcasting focus. Check. When you cast a wizard spell with a spell slot, you can temporarily replace its damage type with a type that appears in another spell in your spellbook. So you don't have to have it memorized, but it must be in your spellbook. And it has to be of the same level as the spell you're casting. So I'm casting Fireball. If I know Lightning Bolt, I can make it a Lightning Ball. Okay? As long okay. as Lightning Bolt is in my spell book. But not so with Shocking Grasp. what it makes grasp. you do is want... But not with not Shocking Grasp because it's a right. different level. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And the what it makes you want to do is fill up your spell book with tons of spells at whatever levels you think you might want to swap out so if you want to have a ball fireball that is many different types you must have all these third level spells that cover all the different energy types and then you can swap it um that's a lot of coin wizards know people who play wizards know that you're like using all this coin and everybody else is just like what i don't have any economic problems what do i do with all this coin and the wizards like give it to me um, so the other question is whether your DM gives you lots of spells or the adventures give you lots of spells. They often don't. If you look at most 5e adventures, they, there is a dearth of spell books for, for wizards. Um, DMs put more spell books if you have a wizard. But, okay, so anyway, so that's, that's how that works. Now, the other thing, and I like this one a lot. When you cast a wizard spell as a ritual, you can use the spell's normal casting time rather than adding 10 minutes to it, which is what a ritual usually requires. You can only do that once per long rest. I like it. It's not super broken, but it's super useful, and it lets you shine, right? Like, I'm going to cast a Ted Magic as a ritual right now, right? Or any of those kinds of things. That's cool. Um, Then it has the standard stuff where if somehow you lose the book, you can replace it. It'll come back and all that kind of thing. Um, what I most liked about this, because it, it, you're right, this is a ton of sort of like 
you have to read a lot to think through it, and then you're going to have to do this bookkeeping as the game goes on. Like, you need to have a way to know that your fireball can swap into these three things, and your second-level spells can swap into these two things. And so that's like some bookkeeping, a lot of bookkeeping for maybe a little benefit. Um, and somebody, I, I, you know, one of the other classes we had just had a feature where you could just change the energy type. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that right. subclass is going to mock this one. Um what I did really like about this is that tribality.com in their review suggested you call your awakened spellbook either Siri or Alexa or Janet or even <laughs> Clippy. Oh, and and they keep throughout the review that they're talking about what an amazing RP concept this can be. And that alone made me go, okay, you know, this can be kind of fun if you just think of your spellbook in that kind of way. And then it's doing all these functions for you. It could be really fun. That That is funny. Okay, so then at sixth level, you get Manifest Mind. So you're conjuring forth the mind of the consciousness of your Awakened Spellbook. Um, as a bonus action, when the book is on your person, you can cause the mind to manifest as a tiny spectral object. My mind is a tiny spectral object. Uh, hovering <laughs> in an unoccupied space within 60 feet of you, uh, it's intangible, does not occupy its space, and it sheds a dim light for a 10-foot radius. It looks like a ghostly tome, a cascade of text, or a scholar from the past. While it's manifested, uh, the mind can hear and see, and it has dark vision out to 60 feet, and it can telepathically share with you what it sees or hears with no action required. Whenever you cast a spell on your turn, you can cast it as if you were in the spectral mind's space instead of your own using its senses. You can do this a number of times per day equal to your proficiency bonus um, and then recharges at the end of a long rest. As a bonus action, you can cause the spectral mind to hover up to 30 feet to an unoccupied space that you can see or it can see. It can pass through creatures but not objects. Uh, the spectral mind stops manifesting if it is ever more than 300 feet away from you. If someone casts a spell magic on it, if your awakened spellbook is destroyed, if you die, or if you dismiss the spectral mind as a bonus action. And then once you conjure it, you can't do so again until you finish a long rest unless you expend a spell slot of any level to conjure it again. Whew. So yeah. that was really yeah, a long... The previous one was complicated. This yeah. one so, so basically, what you're this saying is, is a long way. You can you can cast a spell from a different square as its central point. Basically, and you can sort of scout like its yeah. arcane eye. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's visible. So I started thinking about since it's an object, you could cast animate objects on it, which then makes it a creature. Then you could cast invisibility on it. So as long as the light is brighter, is dimmer, brighter, it, you wouldn't notice the light and it would be invisible. And then it would be a really good scout. But that takes a fifth level spell, animate objects. But that could be fun to do. So, but why would you even need to do that? Why would you need to animate? Because it? it's visible. So it's this spectral okay. visible book that gives off light. So but if it's, it's one of the problems with arcane eye or any other okay. scouting thing gotcha. is that... It sounds great, except the moment you send it down the corridor and you see, like, the room with the trolls in it, the trolls go, oh, weird, a giant floating eye, and they'd start chasing it back to you. And you go, oh, trolls are coming, and everybody's like, thanks for scouting the dungeon, you know? Okay. Like, what you really want to do is be invisible. So you could do that if you want to. Does it say, I, yeah, it's, it's a weird feature. I, does it, it looks like a, it can look me, like a scholar from your past. 
uh, but it's tiny, so it can look like a little person. But and ghostly. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, it'd be tiny. You're right. It's tiny. <laughs> so I mean, and it if, gives off light again. It gives yeah. off dim light. Yeah, I. So it's, it's a weird. It's a weird thing. I, this whole feature, I'm like, this is not what I expected a book to do. Right. Yeah. And uh, and I think maybe this should have been a more booky thing. <laughs> right. <laughs> Instead of Ghost Scout. Call your bookie uh, today. Cast from another square. Yeah, I don't know. Right. And and I, I'm sure at some point they toyed with giving it an actual stat block, but they never it never gets a stat block. And maybe it should have been an actual construct or something. But you know, if it dies, it comes back to you or something. I don't know. It's um, I almost would rather it be a familiar of a special kind with a new stat block and just come back to you when it dies versus going away. Right. But I don't know. It is what it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it it totally is, and I can see people having a lot of fun with it. I can see see it working well for some. I'm just, it's yeah, it's it's the same problem I yeah. have with a lot of wizardy, sort of arcane heavy classes, which is, I like stories where the characters sort of work with what work with what is presented to them rather than bringing a lot of groundbreaking or game breaking things in from their character. If that makes sense. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Because this potentially, depending on how it's used at one table, it could break every adventure. If the DM decides, well, it's so small that nobody can see it and it's scouting through everything. Mm -hmm. The next table the DM, you know, oh, everyone sees it because it's not hidden. So, therefore, the alarm goes off in the, in the you know, giant's lair. Right. It's, it's just too much. It's too swingy, both in terms of power and in terms of how it can be used uh, for me. But that's where I sit on yeah, there. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I just think this feature, I, I like that it's open play. Like, I do like open play things. There are too many things that are just plus X damage or whatever. And so it, it is nice to have that variation. It's just, this is a hard one to work with. And, and um, I'd rather it be, I, ra I, I kind of would rather things be a little more clear on what they can and can't do, but then be, but have that be focused and limited in, in its own way. Mm -hmm. um, like, if the point is for your book to scout, Tell me really how it works when it's zipping around a dungeon or whatever. And then this is a little, it's so, open, as you said, it's open to interpretation and that causes some problems. You don't know what to expect from your DM. Uh, and it's your sixth level feature. So it's theoretically a big deal that you're doing with this. Yeah. But, um, but it's not clear if it will be a big deal. Mm -hmm. uh, at 10th level, you get Master Scrivener. Whenever you finish a long rest, you can create one magic scroll by touching your wizardly quill to a blank piece of paper or parchment and causing one spell from your awakened spellbook to be copied onto the scroll. The spellbook must be within five feet of you when you make the scroll. Uh, the chosen spell must be of first or second level and have a casting time of one action. Once in the scroll, the spell's power is enhanced, counting it as one level higher than normal. So it can be only be a second level spell, but you could cast it as if it were a third level spell. Um, and then you Here's can read the it as an action. Can you, can you copy a first level spell? I don't think you can, according to this, do a first level at, at second level, like upcast it and have it come across as third. I think it, you must choose one or the other. 
Yeah, I mean, yeah, there you go. You know, that's that's a huge question. Well, if you cast, no, I mean, I would say a, if you cast a first level spell, it must be first or second level. So it doesn't say whether the spell or the slot. So you're right. Um, mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, so the yeah. scroll is unintelligible to anyone else, and the spell vanishes when you cast it or when you finish a, a long your next long rest. Uh, yeah, I I have no problem with that. You get basically get a free yep. spell slot with a little mm-hmm. little oomph to it. Yeah, this reminds me of the design we did for Acquisitions Incorporated with the Documancer. Mm-hmm. Uh, that occupation at rank four could provide a spell scroll of up to third level, but it only lasted 10 minutes or until used. It's the same kind of idea, right? It's going to vanish pretty quickly. This one lasts till your next long rest, or, or uh, it must, it, you yeah. can't do it. Yeah, it, it, it goes away. It vanishes at the when you yeah. finish your next long rest. Yeah. So you kind of get a day to use it. And just that idea of, Get this, use it, and done. That's a fun idea. I like it. Yeah. Uh, you are also adept at crafting spell scrolls, which are described in the treasure chapter of the Dungeon Master's Guide. The gold and time you must spend to make such a scroll are halved if you use your wizardly quill. So off the top of your head, how long and how much does it take to make a scroll, Teos? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, I'd have to look it up. And it uses the downtime rules, which I think they could have done a better job of sort of explaining that that's uh, what they're talking about. But, um, but yeah, it's fine. Um, yep, it's okay. I yeah. mean, if you're doing scrolls all the time, which I don't know how many people are. but I, I can't imagine a 10th level wizard who uses all of their spell slots the way the game is that played is these part things. of the issue yeah so yeah. do these scrolls really do anything uh other than maybe give them to someone else to copy into their spell book uh you know what what does it yeah what's good about this last one is that that can be that one is an actual spell scroll so that's where you can have a spell available to cast that now you don't have to spend slots on or you don't have to prepare okay. it. Um, and, and so therefore you have like utility spells that you can put onto that, right? Your, your okay. tongues, your comprehend languages can be around. So that is useful, right? That utility stuff. That's cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's the benefit of the, of that ability. And, and that's half as expensive. So, so I, you know, that's cool. And for wizards who like doing that, that's cool. You cover more, more breadth and now your spell slots can be focused on probably damage. Yep. Excellent point. I, I did not, again, without not playing a wizard ever, basically, I, uh, I didn't think of that. Yeah. So, although you could cast, no, your hate you, blinds you. Well, I was just thinking about the ritual thing, but you would still have to have the spell memorized to cast it as a ritual. Yeah, uh, for that once. Yeah, the day. benefit of the ritual is that you don't burn the slot. Right. Um, yeah, so it's sort of like you have both things, right? One is you can you can cast a ritual without uh, burning a slot, and you can do it immediately. So that's one benefit. Then you have your ability to create a temporary scroll that's first or second level, but boosted by one level that will vanish at the end of the day. And then you have the ability to craft scrolls at half cost. It's a whole bunch of stuff is is exactly why you don't love wizards. But for someone who does, if you love that maintenance, 
these are a cool set of features, right? Absolutely. If you like that that deal. Yeah. Swinging and dealing it, then it'll it'll be good for you. And that's why I put that disclaimer up there. If you right? like if bookkeeping, you, yeah, this the bookkeeper <laughs> is this is the uh, for you if you are a, into a keeping book. And at fourteenth level, you get one with the word. Your connection to your awakened spellbook has become so profound that your soul has become entwined with it. While the book is on your person, you have advantage on all intelligence arcana checks, as the spellbook helps you remember magical lore. Just just put that at second level, get it over with. Uh, that, so that's here's my... the thing. You send your spell book down the corridor. It finds a weird uh, arcana thing. Yeah. You're looking at it through the book, but I guess for this, you can't get our advantage on the intelligence arcana check. Well, the book is any person. Yeah, person. it has to come back to you. That's weird. Where you okay. can discuss it with them. Yep. Moreover, mm-hmm. if you took, take damage while your spell book's mind is manifested... You can prevent all that damage to you by using your reaction. I'm laughing already. To dismiss the spectral mind, <laughs> using its magic to save yourself. Okay. <laughs> Bear with me here. Okay. So you, you take damage. You're like, I'm going to absorb this damage. Or, <laughs> so I'm going to roll 3d6. So you're going to get a number from 3 to 18. The spell book temporarily loses spells of your choice that have a combined spell level equal to that roll or higher. All right, so you roll, the average would be about a 10 or an 11. So you'd lose 10 levels worth of spells, which could be a ninth level spell and a first level spell, which could be two fifth level spells, whatever. Uh, so you have to divide it up that way. If I love this one. If there aren't enough spells in the book to cover this cost, you drop to zero hit points. <laughs> So even even if it wouldn't have even if the damage wouldn't have dropped you to zero hit points wouldn't have killed it yeah if you do this and you don't have enough spells in the spell book to absorb it if you happen to stop on a whammy yeah mm-hmm. uh, do it too much and then you roll three sixes and get an eighteen pretend you're rolling your attributes all you cheaters out there and uh, you get three sixes and for some reason you run out, even if it would have taken you from like 90 points to 80 points, this takes you all the way down to zero. Then until you finish one D six long rests, you are incapable of casting the lost (laughs) spells. Even if you find them on a scroll or are in another spell book, after you finish the required number of rests, those spells reappear in your spell book. So, Whew. Which I mean, I just want to pause that that makes no sense. Mm-hmm. I found another book with this spell. Can't understand it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, yeah, this is... Oof. I wish this were a, uh, a, a an unearthed arcana right here, right? Like, again, if you love bookkeeping, they have right. created more bookkeeping for you. Yeah. And your day job of tax accountant is does not have to stop. You can continue it into your game time uh, and, and work with us. The, the thing is, if you're in a campaign where you get enough spells, you're just going to chuck in some extra spells so you can burn this. Right. Uh, having 18 levels worth of spells that you are never going to cast is not that hard to necessarily come up with. And yep. depending on the campaign, if, you, if your spells come up and if you have gold... It'll all work out. It's a little harder in things like organized play where wizards are often hunting for coin to be able to write spells. They have a problem with that monetarily. 
then this is where they won't have that freedom to do this. Right. Um, so it's, it's a weird thing because there's all this words, all of this verbiage, and it may not matter or it may matter. You just don't know, right? Like, yeah. I mean, and that's that. Like if I have two dumb ninth level spells in my book, then that covers everything always. And I'm never worried right. about this. I, I'm never, ever going to take damage because the DM that I happen to be playing with gives us tons of gold and tons of access to spells to write in my spell book. Wait, how many pages can I put in my spell book? It, is this... Is this, can I make a bigger spell book? Do I, can I run out of pages? You know, all of this is problematic because of how different DMs run things. And so this could be really underpowered. This could be really overpowered. It's, it's impossible to say from campaign to campaign. It, it is only once per day. Um, you know, you can only do this once a day. Okay. Uh, I think to me, a thing is, is the, the type of player, like some players will go, wait, wait, I want to use this. And they're going to sit there and figure out which spells they're going to cross off temporarily. And someone else goes, cool. I'm going to block all the damage. I'll mark off the spells. Don't worry. And we'll move on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Um, so it's just going to vary wildly. I, I think again, if you like the bookkeeping, I think there can be a good concept here. But this is certainly a, an example of where a lot of words were used to achieve effects. And I don't know that all those words were necessary or that they improved the game substantially for the average player. Mm -hmm. I don't yeah. know. I, I agree. And again, my, my views are probably tainted by my preferences. Uh, and if you, you know, this could be super fun for the right players and in the right campaign and it's yeah. super it's definitely flavorful uh in terms of yeah. how how they see this book sort of becoming something bigger than a normal book would be uh it's just mechanically it it twists my brain into a pretzel mm -hmm. yeah I, I mean honestly i could play this class i don't mind bookkeeping and stuff like that but but i would have to gear up for it and be in the mood for it so i, I could certainly do it but but i'm but i'm not in love with the design but this, i'll say that so that ends our hey, that look. was the wizard we made it we made it all the way to the end of all the classes so next time i think the only thing we have left to talk about in tasha's are the group patrons but there's a lot to say about group feats and spells oh okay Group patrons, feats, and spells. If we want to do this. Sure. Well, I mean, there's a lot to say about patrons. Uh, so we can uh, we yeah. can start there, and then we'll see if how we're feeling to get to uh, feats and spells and magic items. Yep. All right. Uh, anything to say before we sign off? Uh, I was going to invite you to this all-wizard campaign, but uh, I'm going uh, to... <laughs> <laughs> oh, look at the time. I, I, uh, that's our podcast, folks. Yes, that's our podcast. We will never uh, have another episode, but we Welcome will to mastering wizards, the all wizard <laughs> podcast. But thank you for putting up with us, putting up with my wizard hate, uh, <laughs> and, and just chaos in general. Uh, thank you to our listeners. Thank you to our patrons. <laughs> yeah. You just got that. Huh? Uh, if you like the show, yeah. please consider yeah. supporting us on uh, on on Patreon at patreon.com slash MMP. Uh, Teos, where can people find you on the intranet? Uh, 
My Wizard's Tower is located at <laughs> AlphaStream on Twitter. Mm-hmm. And my uh, moat house slash holdfast is found as a blog at alphastream.org. Mm-hmm. And Where can my, we find you, Sean? My AD&D barbarian, uh, who, of course, <laughs> hates wizards, uh, can be found at Sean Merwin on Twitter or on the forums at forums.misdirectedmark.com. Or you can go and follow us on Twitter at the podcast uh, handle at MasteringDND. Mastering Dungeons is a misdirected Mark production, the media arm of Encoded Designs. So, Teos, what should we do now that we've finished with Wizards? So, imagine this campaign where it's like Hogwarts, right? And each of us has a different... <laughs> Go kill some wizards. Wizards. <laughs> <laughs>